0: Our society is in many ways a sad society. There's a lot of tragedy. People experience heartaches. In the midst of a sad world, in the midst of tragedy, God is still fully in control. He is in control, so I can trust Him with my life. In the end, ultimately, everything is going to be okay. It may not be okay right now, but ultimately it will because He's in control, so we can make the determined choice. We're going to praise God in every situation, regardless of the circumstances of life, regardless of what life brings. Another reason we can have joy is because we know that when trials come, that God is bigger than the trials that we face in this messed up world. And we can do this because joy, we know, is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not based on circumstances. It's not based on emotions. Those things change. It's not based on possessions. Possessions come and go. Joy is not based on temporary things like that. Joy is based on Christ, who's eternal. Happiness, emotions, possessions, all of those things are temporary. But Christ is eternal, and joy is based on him, so joy is eternal. But it's not something that's automatic. We've been in this series called Joy Ride, Experiencing Joy. Along the ride of life, the definition we're using for joy is Rick Warren's definition where he says joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. And that's one of the wonderful things about being a follower of Christ is that God wants to be involved in every detail of your life, not just the big stuff. He wants to be involved in every detail. He cares about you that much. So there's confidence in that. Joy comes from the confidence of knowing that God is in control of all of the details of my life. It is the assurance, it is the quiet confidence that ultimately everything's going to be okay because I know that God is in control of all the details of my life. So I'm going to make the determined choice To praise him in every situation which results in joy. That's what produces joy. That's how we choose joy in our lives. And two things I've wanted to accomplish here. Number one, I want you to experience joy. I want everybody here to experience true joy. But I also want us to to share that joy with other people. God's people should be people of joy. We see 300 times in the Bible the words rejoice or joy mentioned. In Philippians alone, 16 different times, Paul mentions this word, a form of the word joy, because it is the book of joy. He's encouraging the Philippians to be people of joy. We can have joy that transcends circumstances because true joy comes from faith in Jesus Christ. It's not dependent upon our circumstances. The reality is we should be the most joyful people because of what we receive from him and what we receive on a daily basis or is available to us. We receive the grace of God and we receive the peace of God. Grace from above, grace is something that comes to me, a gift that I don't deserve. Peace is something that happens within me that... Is not in any way dependent upon my circumstances. Peace that passes all human comprehension. We'll talk about that next week in chapter four. But because of those two things, we should be people of joy. We can experience joy. Again, it's not something. That happens automatically especially in the world that we live in that it does have a lot of sadness does have a lot of tragedy this is not something that's just going to come automatically and that's why John Piper says we need to fight for joy we have to choose to be joyful God makes it available but we have to choose it and we must make a determined choice that we're going to praise God and we're going to trust him but when you have joy Here's one of the beautiful byproducts. In the midst of this world that we live in, filled with sadness, filled with difficulties, when you have joy and other people see that that don't know Christ, they want to know what that's all about because they realize there's something missing from their lives. They may not know what that something is, but they know you have something that they don't. When you're able to maintain joy in the midst of a sad society it gives us the opportunity they realize there's something missing it gives us the opportunity to share with them what that is you know as Christians we're kind of a weird group I mean in a lot of ways but but one way in particular is that we are described in the Bible we are earthlings yet we're also described as aliens and and what that means is that that this world while we live here our citizenship is not here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we're, we're to be in the world, but our citizenship is not here. Also, we're in the world. We're not of the world. In other words, we don't live like the world. And so in the midst of this society that we live in, all of the trials, all of the tribulations, we are, we are left here to stay here. God, God leaves us here. You would think that the minute I receive Jesus... There would be like a, a direct highway from here to heaven, or, or I, God would just teleport me from the moment I say, Jesus, I give you my life to where I'm in his presence in heaven. You would think that, that he would, would, would free us, rescue us from all of the, the difficulties we face, but he doesn't. So why is that? Why does God leave heaven-bound people on a hell-bound earth? Why does he leave us here in the midst to deal with all of the same junk, garbage, that the rest of the world has to deal with because of the sin that exists? Well, the only thing I can figure and what I know is that he's got a strategy. There's a reason for it. There's something that he wants to accomplish through us, which is why he's left us here. And that's what we're going to look at today as we continue this series called Joyride. In, verse, in, in John chapter 16, we're going to start in John chapter 16. I know we're going through Philippians. We're going to start in John chapter 16 and, and verse 17 this morning. And then we're going to move to Philippians chapter 3. So, so mark your Bible in Philippians 3, but then turn over to John chapter 16. We're going to read a few verses from there. What We see in John chapter 16 and 17, these are Jesus' words to his disciples right before he goes to the cross. He's preparing them, he's praying for them because he's about to leave them. And and he's he's praying for them and and instructing them because they're, they're going to be left here and there's a reason God is leaving them here. And what we see here in these chapters, in this passage, is Jesus' strategy for maintaining joy as we are left in this This cesspool of a world as it can be, as we fulfill his plan. There's a strategy for fulfilling his plan and maintaining joy. And in in John chapter 16, verses uh, chapter 16 and 17, I see three statements that we will draw that give us Jesus' strategy for maintaining joy in a sad society. But first, we need to understand that strategy. We need to understand what's Jesus' purpose in leaving us here. And the first part of his strategy is the truth that we can have inner peace in the midst of outer pressures and pain. Outer pressures and pain, we can have inner peace in the midst of that. Look at verses 1 and 2 of John 16. I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. For you will be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service to God. What's he saying here? He's saying, you are going, he's talking to the disciples, he's saying, you are going to experience trials, you're going to experience pain, persecution. And the people who are doing it are actually going to think they're doing the right thing. And other people will support them in that. Verse 13, same chapter. He says, When the Spirit of truth comes, though, I will give you my spirit. I'm leaving you, but I'm still going to be with you. My Holy Spirit will be with you. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. So the Holy Spirit takes up residence. We always have the presence of Christ with us in the Holy Spirit. And and the, the role of the Holy Spirit is to comfort us to tell us what we need to do when we don't know what to do, to guide us, to prepare us. I will tell you the things that you need to know. He will tell us what we need to know to face the circumstances that we face. But he also says in verse 33, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me, inner peace in the midst of outer pressures and pains. already told him about the outer pressures and pain, so that you will have peace in me here on earth. You will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Let's think about it this way. I have a few things here. One's just a paper towel. Now, paper towels are not necessarily the strongest thing in the world. Paper towels are pretty easy to break. I can stick my finger through it, no problem. This represents you and me. We are the paper towel. And this hammer represents all of the pressures, the pains, the trials of life. And life will beat you down sometimes, won't it? I mean, sometimes life is good. Sometimes I enjoy my life. I enjoy my family, but but life is hard sometimes. Trials, tribulations, pain, suffering, death, disease, illness, whatever. Life can beat you down. And left to ourselves, that's a dangerous place to be. We're going to be ruined. We're not going to make it. So what do we need in order for us to be able to withstand all of the pressures of life, the pain, the pounding? Well, first of all, we need Jesus, and that's what my little paper towel roll represents here. We need Christ. We need to accept salvation. You can't have joy. Remember, if you have salvation, you can know joy, but without salvation, you can't know joy. So in the midst of the pressures of life, we've got to first have Christ in our lives. He has to be at the center of our lives so we wrap our lives around him. He is at the center. He is everything. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to wrap around Jesus, the center of our lives. The rubber band represents absolutely nothing, in case you're wondering, <laughs> other than to just hold that in place. So, now that we have Jesus in the center of our lives, we, he gives us grace from above and peace from within. So that's what our salt is going to represent, peace. That peace we'll talk about next week, the peace that passes all understanding. He gives us his peace, but he fills us with his peace. And this peace that passes all understanding is peace and abundance. What we see is when he fills us with peace, suddenly now, here we are, Jesus at the, at the center, and now we have A barrier between us and all of the trials of life. And what we see is that, I mean, life's gonna pound, but in the end, we're gonna be okay. We're protected, we're shielded by the peace of God. The trials are still there, it's still pounding on us pretty good, but, and making a mess in the process, but. (laughs) The reality is, all that's coming out the top. It's not coming out of the bottom. And it doesn't matter how hard you get pounded in life. It's still going to hurt. It's still going to be difficult. But in the end, we're going to be protected. The peace of God, the peace from in within protects us. Doesn't just completely shield us in the sense that we don't experience. But it protects us from the outer pressures of life. So if you want... To maintain joy in this sad society, the first thing you've got to realize is that you need to have Christ in the center of your life and you need his peace from within to protect you from the outer pressures of life. Christians are not exempt from the blasts, the pain, the suffering that comes. We will suffer just like others will suffer. But in the midst of that, we can expect to have joy. We can have joy because of the peace that he gives us. unexplainable, illogical peace. We'll talk more about that next week. Another aspect of Jesus' strategy is that we are also insulated by divine power, yet we are not to live an isolated existence. We're insulated, and that peace is one of the things that that insulates us. It, it, It softens the blow, but we're not to live an isolated existence. We're in the world, not of the world. Let's look at Jesus' words in chapter 17 of John. After saying these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one of you, each one you have given him. And this is the way to eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. And then in... Verse 11, he goes on, he's praying for his disciples, and he continues. He says, now I'm departing the world. They, he's talking about his disciples, but listen, we are now followers of Christ. He's praying for his disciples in that moment, but this prayer applies to all of us as his followers. Those whom he's left on the earth. He says, "These, these are staying, the ones you gave me, I'm departing. They are staying in the world, but I'm coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that, they, that not one was lost except the one headed for destruction. He's talking about Judas, as the scriptures foretold. Now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in the world so they will be filled with my joy. Joy is the key to surviving in a sad society. I've, I've told them this so that they can be filled with joy. I've given them your word. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world. We're in the world, not of the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but here, listen to this, to keep them safe, to insulate them, to keep them safe from the evil one. Jesus is praying, and he's deliberately asking God the Father, do not remove these disciples. Also includes us. He's left us here with a strategy, with a plan. He's asking him intentionally, do not remove them from all of the garbage, all of the sin, all of the things that surround us. They are mine, but they are going to be left here. I'm leaving them here. Do not remove them. Instead, insulate them. As the fire of sin surrounds us and we will feel the heat of evil and sin... Every day of our lives, as we are surrounded by that, we're protected, there is a barrier of insulation between us and the effects of sin. I mean, We still experience trials, we still experience pain, and they will hurt temporarily, but eternally, we are fully protected. God places his hand of protection on us, and as long as he leaves us here, his hand of protection will stay on us. He will insulate us from the, from the pain of sin and the, the eternal effects from sin. Also, we need to understand that even though we may be unique, we still need to be unified. One of the great things about the church is that we are made up of a bunch of different people that come from different backgrounds. God created each of us unique. We, we have different gifts, different abilities, different likes, different dislikes. We have different spheres of influence as a result where we can make an impact for Christ. I mean, we all have different lives. And so in our little sphere of spheres of influence, we can make the impact that he calls us to make. But also, one of the mysteries of the church is that he takes all of these different backgrounds, all of these different personalities, and he brings them together, unites them, one united front, one united force for good. He wants to accomplish something through us as a united body of believers for his kingdom. God, even though we're different, don't miss that we are supposed to be united for his purpose and his mission. Look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter seventeen, John chapter 17. They do not belong to this world. Any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. And then verse 21. Skip to verse 21. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. He's talking about his relationship with God the Father. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us, so that the world will believe you you sent me. So one with one another, just as Jesus is with the Father, but also as we are one with one another, we are to be one with Christ. Verse 23, I am in them and you are in me. That's how that's possible. We can't be one with each other without Jesus. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Here's the idea. Again, we're brought together by this powerful force, Jesus, he unites us, we're brought together, united for good. And what happens is, when the world sees that, just as they see our joy, as they see all of us who are different come together with our differences and work together for good in the midst of this sad world where things seem to be falling apart and different people are at odds with one another, countries are at war, political divisions, all of these things. When they see the church come together as one united force with one mission, They, again, want to know what that's all about. How in the world can you come together and and be united the way that you are? Be at peace with one another. And they realize, hey, I don't have that ability in my life. There's something missing from my life. And once again, we get to say, here it is. It's Jesus. This is what's missing. See, God's strategy is so, Jesus' strategy is so perfect. Stop and think about this for just a moment. Would it be easy to overlook somebody who's at peace when you're panicking because of whatever's going on, and you think they should be too? Yet yeah, they're at peace. Would it be possible for you to just just overlook somebody when you're weak, when you're you're falling apart, you're feeling the pressure and the pain of sin, all of that, and you you don't know how you're going to wake up the next morning or put your, your the foot the next foot in front of the other? Would it be easy? To, to feel that way, but then see somebody else who seems to be insulated from all of that. Yeah, they, they experience the same things you do, but yet they, they're calm and they're at peace. Or what about somebody that's able to actually enjoy their lives and laugh in the midst of heartache? If you, without any hope, without any foundation, see somebody like that that seems to be so secure and so at peace when the world seems to be falling apart, wouldn't you want to know how they got that, how they became that way? I know I would. and the lost world, they will want to know. Even if they don't know what's missing, they will know something is missing. We are protected and we have peace. We're insulated. However... We're to do more than just sit here while Jesus leaves us here on earth. There is a plan, there's a strategy, but there, there, there are marching orders that if you go back to Philippians 3, go back to Philippians 3 or forward to Philippians 3, you'll see that Paul gives us some marching orders that go right with the strategy that we just talked about that Jesus has for us. Marching orders that we are to follow as we attempt to survive and maintain joy in this sad society. So we need to follow Paul's marching orders. What are they? Well, first we need examples to follow. We need examples in our lives that we can look up to that will lead us, that will disciple us, people that we can follow. Look at Philippians 3.17. Join in imitating me. Now, Paul's not being arrogant. He just knows that God's called him to lead these people. He's saying, listen, y'all imitate me as, he says, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. And of course, we know that Paul imitated Christ and he's saying, imitate me as well as those that God has given you. And I have good news and bad news here. I'm giving you the bad news first. That's what you're supposed to do. The bad news is, is this ride of life is sometimes an arduous, long, and tedious ride. Life is tough sometimes. Again, I love my life. I enjoy my life. But there are those days. For the entire month of of January and most of February, I think we were sick the entire time. We don't get sick in our house, but we had everything that that y'all were passing around, we got it. Every stomach virus, flu, respiratory, I mean, we had it all. And every time somebody get well, somebody else would get sick. It was just crazy. That, that, I didn't really enjoy that too much. Not to mention the fact that I had all three at some, at some point. Life is tough. That, that, and that's just part of it. We have to remember that, in, that this life, it's a marathon, not a race, not a sprint, rather. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a daily grind. God's left us here, and he's, he, he, we've got to deal with all of this. He insulates us. He protects us. But here's the good news. You're not alone. We're not alone. And there, this, this leads us to a reminder that there are people that God has placed in your life that you can look to as examples and as encouragement, to, to get encouragement, but also to, to help you and to disciple you. But here's, here's something we need to think about. As we talk about examples to follow, and listen, we all need examples to follow, but be very careful because God does not intend for you to just have one example to follow. There shouldn't be one person that's your sole source of instruction. That shouldn't be me. That shouldn't be your Sunday school teacher or anybody. There shouldn't just be one person that you look up to for instruction and, and as a model to follow because here's what happens if you do that. You tend to get tunnel vision and it comes really close to idolizing that person. Not really close. That's what it turns into if you're not careful. That, that's not God's plan. He wants us to have examples to follow, but not just one. Remember, look, Paul says, he says, look to me, but he says also to others that God has placed in your life to follow, to lead you. We should have more than one person. So, so what are we looking for when we're searching for examples? Well, since Paul said he's an example, let's look at what he said to Timothy. Paul was Timothy's mentor. In 2 Timothy 3.10, he said, But you, Timothy, certainly know that, that I, what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance. All of those are qualities of a follower of Christ. He says, You've seen all that. You know how much persecution and suffering I've endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He's saying, Timothy, you've seen my example. God's placed me in your life to lead you, to follow my example. And don't forget that those we follow, Paul says, follow me, but he's following Christ. Those that we follow should be followers of Christ. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1. So we, we follow those, but we need to make sure that these people are worthy of following. Let me before we move on, let me give you a few practical suggestions for determining your role models. First of all, choose your mentors slowly. Don't just go after the next popular person. They may just be they may be just fine. But be careful who you choose. Get to know them. Spend time with them. Choose your mentors slowly slowly and one thing that you need to do as you're choosing is study their private lives carefully they're the same in their lives as they are in front of whoever they're leading it's one of my goals in life as a leader as a pastor is i don't want to be fake I mean, I want to be who I am, good, bad, and indifferent. And there's plenty of bad to go along with the good. I've got flaws just like everybody else. But, but, and here's the thing, I want to be that for you, but I want, when I get home, I want my kids to see the same person at home as they see up here on Sunday morning. Study, not, and I'm not perfect, but, but those people we follow, we need to get to know their character, who they are when no one else is watching. Are they the same? So study their private lives and then spend time with them regularly. Once you've determined that they are godly, that they display some of the same characteristics that Paul mentioned, that they they are really genuine in their faith, then spend as much time as possible. I'll never forget coming up in ministry. God placed me in a ministry position. Mandy's dad was one of these men, but there were other men on staff and and other men that I knew that, that God placed in my life, and I drove them nuts. Spending time with them, going on hospital visits, asking them questions. Whenever they would allow me and I had the time to just tag along, I would do that. We moved to New Orleans. God placed me in the path of a man by the name of Dr. Joe McKeever, who was the pastor at First Baptist Kenner. He grew up in Jasper, which is just a short drive from where I grew up in Adamsville, and so we made a connection, and I would just take one day a week, and I would spend half the day with him going and doing whatever he was doing. He, he let me go to meetings with him, but I got to know him, and I got to see him with people, leading people, but also I got to see these guys when it was just the two of us, and when they were not leading or not being, fulfilling church duties even. Spending time with those people you follow. That's how you get to know them and that's how you get mentored. Spend as much time as possible. We need examples to follow. Then we also need to be aware of the enemies of the cross and there are enemies of the cross. Paul's saying, okay, you know Jesus' strategy. He's left you here. Be a people of joy. This is the letter of joy. Understand the trials, the persecutions you're facing is because they're enemies of the cross. And they are just that, they're enemies. They're trying to destroy the work that God's doing. Look at verse 18 of chapter 3, Philippians 3. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Here's a snapshot of their future. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory in, is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. Now, listen, Paul is is firm, but he's not judgmental. And here's here's something that I think we need to be reminded of on a regular basis. As you and I are out fulfilling, attempting to fulfill the mission that God has given us, if we're going to take the gospel to a lost world, we've got to remember that they are lost. They are lost, hopelessly lost. And lost people act like lost people, they don't act like Christians. If we invite them here, they're not suddenly going to act like Christians. Even when they get saved, God's got work to do on them just like he's working on you and me. We can't expect lost people to act like anything but lost. That's what Paul's saying. Listen, if you're experiencing difficulties, if you're under attack, it's because they're lost. They don't know any better. All they have is right here. Now, let's just break this verse down very quickly. Look at what he says. Helps us understand their condition. And hopefully, even those who are enemies of us, they're enemies of the cross, ultimately, even those who are enemies, maybe, just maybe, we can have a little compassion toward them. Look at verse 19 again. He tells us they're destined for eternal hopelessness. Their end is destruction. That's their future. You and I have heaven to look forward to. They have nothing. They're destined for destruction. They're driven by fleshly appetites. Their God is their stomach. That's what he's talking about. If you're exposed to the world very long, you'll realize just how real that statement is. Fleshly appetites. Pleasure for the moment. If you don't have an eternity to look forward to, if you don't have joy... That, that transcends circumstances, you're going to be reaching for anything that will make you feel better in this sad, messed-up cesspool society that we live in. You, that, that phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, holds true today just as much as when it was first said. People look for pleasure wherever they can get it. And then the lost are also dedicated to material things. They're focused on earthly things. And listen, if, if a lost person, virtually everything... they they are drawn to is is physical. They don't have eternity to look forward to. All they have is what's right here. So they grab a hold of whatever they can, whatever they can see, whatever they can touch and feel. Anything that they can draw some sense of security from, some sense of pleasure from, that's what they're going to hold on to. Now think about that. Those people that frustrate us because of whatever political views they have or that are contrary to God's Word or, or, or whatever agenda they're pushing or, or however mean and miserable they are, we have to remember this is their destiny if they're lost. You and I have heaven to look forward to, Jesus, yet they have nothing but what's right here and now. And the things of this earth will pass away. But the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is eternal will never pass away. So as we read over this list, this should remind us that God has put us here for a reason. And listen, we should stand for the truth. We should make sure we are ready to defend our faith. But our responsibility as believers when we're approaching a lost world is not to argue with them. It's not to put them down. It's not to make them feel ashamed. It's to reach out to them with the love of Jesus. There's a way to speak the truth without beating somebody to death with it. And that's what we have to do. We have to love them, yet point them to Christ. That's our responsibility, to model a different lifestyle, a lifestyle of joy, a lifestyle that's so convincing, that's so appealing, that they will see us and say, I want whatever you have, because I don't have it. It's missing from my life. We point them to Christ in love with truth. I know you've heard of the gladiator games that took place, took place from about 105 B.C. to 404 A.D., and, and these were horrific events. I mean, men would fight to the death. Many times they were prisoners with death sentences, but nonetheless, they would put them in, a, in an arena that was built for this purpose, Roman gladiators, and they would fight until one of them lost, could no longer defend himself, and usually that, that person that lost was killed by being stabbed in the throat. Here's the sad part, though. Thousands of people would come and watch these events and would roar with excitement when that person was finally killed. I mean, it was was a spectator sport and it wasn't the scum of society. The elite of society would come and watch these events. Here's what's more sad. Christians, once Christ the church started, Christians would come and watch these events. And it went on for years. There was an emperor who was a Christian who tried to put a stop to the games about 313 B.C. He did put a stop to the games, but it didn't last very long because society was in an uproar, and they they demanded that the games be brought back. And, of course, most followers of Christ or many followers of Christ saw that there was a problem with this. It was brutal. I mean, one person described these games as cannibal banquets for the soul, and that's pretty much what they were. And and they were disgusted that people were taking joy in these events, and and they 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 told pastors would tell their congregations, hey, if you go to these events, we're not we're not going to allow you to be to take part in communion. We're going to disassociate you from the fellowship. They wouldn't allow gladiators to be baptized unless they changed professions. I guess those that weren't criminals, or, or that they, they were allowed to reach, in, in prison, they they wouldn't allow them to be baptized. So they took a stand against it. They recognized that it was wrong. But one Christian, a guy by the name of Telemachus, took a stand that was a little stronger than that. I believe it was 400 B.C., somewhere around 400 A.D. rather. Telemachus said, I'm tired of just talking about it. He actually, in the midst of one of these competitions, jumped into the arena to attempt to stop the fight. What happened was the crowd, a mob formed, made up of many people who were professing Christians, a mob formed and stoned him to death for trying to stop the match. Well, that event kind of highlighted this is a problem, as if they didn't see it, shouldn't have seen it before. His martyrdom was part of the reason it finally stopped, but it finally stopped in 404 A.D. because enough Christians, yeah, they talked about it, They recognized that it was wrong, but they began to take a stand and they said, listen, this is evil. This is horrible. Let me show you a better way to live. That's what finally stopped the Roman gladiator competitions. Christians said, this is evil, but listen, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to take pleasure from this. God's got a better way. As we go around in this world that we live in, that's filled with sin and filth. We can tell people, you don't have to live this way. There's a better way to live. In love, let me show you that God's got a plan that's so much better than anything you can find out there. Christians who take a stand make a difference by showing the world there's a better way to live. And whether they realize it or not, people who are lost, they want to be free. They, they want to be free from sin. They want to have joy. They want to, to do more than just exist in this revolving door of defeats. And and trials and tribulations bounce from like a pinball from one side to the next. They want to have joy. They want to be able to laugh and enjoy life. They want outrageous joy, and we have that joy because we belong to those who are bound for heaven. Which is another thing that Paul points out here: we belong belong to those who are bound for heaven. Verse twenty: Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, we will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, let's not forget, we've got a responsibility here on earth. We've got work to do here on earth. But, but can you imagine the curiosity that we could create amongst those who are lost just by living lives of joy, being joyful people? enjoying lives. And I've never been able to figure out why people who are followers of Christ, some of whom seem to be the most miserable people on the, on the earth. I've never, I mean, think about it, in the moment, in, 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 just, in just a little while, one day, we will be completely transformed into the image of Christ. We will be perfect just as he is. That's what we're looking forward to. So in light of that, how could we let any temporary discomfort, pain, suffering, steal our joy when that's what we have to look forward to? I'll never understand that. Life is tough. Life is hard. It can be painful, but we know how it ends and we know our destiny. And we know that one day we won't have to deal with that anymore. Proverbs 1722 says this A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. And I talked about how laughter can be a form of medicine, it actually increases blood flow, it actually exercises your lungs, and it releases those painkillers, endorphins into your body. And there's a story of a guy by the name of Norman Cousins, he wrote a book about this, he was suffering from a horrible disease where the collagen in his body, it's the fibrous material that holds your cells together, it was deteriorating. In his own words, he said, I was coming unglued. What you may or may not know is that disease is extremely Painful. And he was in pain most of the time. Had a very poor outlook for any type of recovery. But with his doctor's permission, he came up with a treatment plan for himself. And here's what he decided to do. He would take vitamins. He would eat healthy all the time. And get this, he would spend time every day watching funny movies like Mark's Brothers movies, Laurel and Hardy, different clips of, of, of whatever, cartoons, anything that would make him laugh. And here's what he found out. That if he spent... Ten minutes laughing, and I mean really laughing hard, gut laugh. Just, I mean, there's nothing better than that, 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 that real gut laugh. That he, if he spent ten minutes laughing hard, he could experience two hours without pain afterwards. He actually recovered to the point to where he lived far beyond anyone ever expected him to live except himself. Laughter really is the best medicine. Sometimes we need to laugh. We need to enjoy life. And when others see that, they're going to want to know how we're able to do that. Norman Cousins, he reminds me, his story reminds me of Proverbs 15, 15. The cheerful heart has a continual feast. doesn't matter what's going on. And if Laurel and Hardy and the Three Stooges and whatever else he watched caused him that much enjoyment in life, how much more should the joy we have in Jesus heal our lives as we deal with all of the destruction and pain and suffering. There should be no comparison. We have the joy of Christ. You and I, we must be the ones who model the message if we ever hope to help our world. And finally, we need to stand firm, but not stand still. have to stand firm, but we're not standing still. So then, my brothers, verse 1 of chapter 4, you are dearly loved and longed for. My joy, my crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. All, all through the letter, Paul's the focus hasn't been on his circumstances, their circumstances, whatever's going on, not themselves, not ourselves. The focus is on Jesus, who's eternal. The focus is on eternal things. 2 Corinthians 4.18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, because what is seen is only temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, don't confuse this. We're standing firm, we're not standing still. We've got work to do. In this bumpy, crazy ride of life, As we experience all these things, what he's saying, stand firm, keep your balance, keep your equilibrium. Don't let the pressures of life sway you. Let the peace of God insulate you, protect you. Stand firm in your faith. Don't let it it, it cause you to doubt. Don't let it cause you to backslide or whatever. Stand firm. Don't stand still. Keep moving forward. Accomplishing God's purposes. We need to to think about this process of spiritual growth as sort of a domino effect. The trials of life are very real and they pound on us, but they test our patience. Boy, don't they ever, don't they? I mean, trials of life, they test our patience. But what happens is is it gives gives an opportunity for our patience to develop. And as our patience develops, character is developed. And as our character is developed... As we trust in Christ, our faith is increased, and as our character, our patience, our faith is increased, as we trust the Lord from day to day, our lives are further molded. We become more like Jesus Christ. It's a domino effect. God has a purpose in it all, and it all works toward making you like himself, making me like himself. There is no shortcut to this, By refusing to avoid our problems, we find ourselves becoming the man or woman, the men and women, boys and girls, youth, students, the men and women God intends for us to be, like his son Jesus. Get a firm grip on your relationship with God and don't let go. Trust him from day to day. It's a marathon, not a sprint. He will continue to bring your attention to the thoughts that will keep you filled with joy. I want to share with you as I finish a story about a lady named Susie. Susie was in a church I pastored a while back. Susie was one of the most joyful people I've ever met in my life. She was born with Tre- Treacher Collins Syndrome, which one of the effects of that is that you can be deaf, and she was mostly moderately deaf. She wore hearing aids, but most of her life, she could not hear very well at all, just barely. Yet she found out she loved music. She could hear just enough. She found out she loved music, and she realized God had give- given her a gift to sing, and she learned to sing by placing her head on a piano while somebody played it so she could hear the notes. Had one of the most beautiful voices I've ever heard in my life, and one of the most joyful people I've ever, I've ever been around in my life. Not long after I got to the church she was a member of, she was diagnosed with Meniere's disease because of, of the Treacher-Collins syndrome, and if you know anything about that, she would go through weeks sometimes bouts with vertigo where she couldn't even get out of bed she could barely sit up but what she would do during those times as well as other times is she would write cards of encouragement prayer cards to people and send them out I was one of the many recipients of her cards prayers words of encouragement not to mention the fact that I never once and I'm not exaggerating I never she always had a smile on her face and I never once heard her complain about the illness she dealt with from day to day. Never once. Well, she and her husband didn't have any kids of their own. They were going to adopt. I mean, she's dealing with all this other stuff. They were going to adopt a child that was, uh, was going to be born, and they had set up to adopt this child. But tragically, the baby died in childbirth. They had set up the nursery at home. They were ready for this baby. And I thought, what in the world? I mean, how... how I mean, honestly, I was like, God, how can you expect somebody to deal with that much? I called her, hoping somehow that I could offer her some sort of word of encouragement. And I kid you not, somehow in that conversation, she ended up encouraging me before we got done. I've never met a person like that in my life. Somebody that has every reason in the world to be sad, to be defeated, to complain, to be angry at God, to be angry at life, one of the most joyful people I have ever met in my life. You know why? Because she's realized that her satisfaction, her joy, is not based on the temporary trials she experiences from day to day. And boy, she's got some. Her joy comes from Jesus. Her joy comes from her relationship with Christ because she knows that one day she's going to be standing in the presence of God and she will hear music like she's never heard before and she will sing like she's never sung before. So anything she deals with today is just a temporary obstacle on her way to see Jesus. That's how she has joy. So in this messed up cesspool world that we live in, we can have joy if we have Jesus. Barbara Johnson says this, in her book, Splashes of Joy in the Cesspools of Life. That's where I got that phrase, by the way. The rain falls on the just and also on the unjust, but chiefly on the just. I love this because the unjust steals the just's umbrella. It's not a problem. In a sad society, even if you get wet doing it, keep reaching, keep moving, keep trusting Keep loving Christ. Keep depending on him, and then you'll have joy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. And Jesus, thank you for grace and peace. Thank you for the mercy that you've shown us and continue to show us each day. Thank you for the joy that we have in you. The only way we can have that joy is if we have you. So Lord, I pray if there's somebody here today that doesn't know you, doesn't know joy because they don't know you, that today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here who's struggling through life and they have a relationship with you, but they're at the end of of their rope, I pray that you would just shower them with your grace and mercy, that peace that passes all understanding. I pray that they would determine to praise you in the midst of their circumstances so that they can experience joy and peace like they never have before. Lord, I pray that you would just strengthen each of us from day to day to live in this world, this sad world, to display the love and joy that you've given us so that other people will see it and want to know what it is and we'll have the opportunity to point them to you. Lord, I pray that you would just lead us in this moment to respond to your word however you would have us respond, whether that's a public decision baptism, church membership, salvation, or if it's just committing our way to you and trusting you to being determined that we're gonna praise you and trust you with our lives, recognizing that you're in control. Whatever it is, Father, may we be obedient in this moment. Always, but right now, may we respond to your word in obedience. For it's in Jesus' name that we do pray, amen. Let's stand together.